The words de profundis are translated from Latin as from the depths. However, de profundis is also the letter written by Oscar Wilde between January and March of 1897 during his imprisonment in Reading Gaul to Bosey, or Lord Arthur Douglas. In total isolation, first in Pentonville and Wandsworth, and then in Reading Gaul, to which he was moved in November of 1895, while slept on a plank bed with no mattress. Allowed one hour's exercise a day, he walked in single file in the yard with other prisoners, but he was not allowed to communicate with them. He could not sleep, he was permanently hungry, and he suffered from dysentery. For the first month, Wilde was tied to a treadmill six hours a day, making an ascent, as it were, of 6,000 feet each day with five minutes rest for every 20 minutes. Towards the end of his sentence, the governor of the jail, Major Nelson, remarked to Wilde's friend Robert Ross in a rather foretelling manner, he looks well. But like all men unused to manual labour who receive a sentence of this kind, he'll be dead within two years. Indeed, Wilde was to die only three years after leaving prison. Wilde was later to praise Nelson, who had arrived at Reading in July of 1896, as the most Christ-like man I have ever met. Nelson was more liberal than his predecessor and was ready to relax the rules. In January 1897, when Wilde still had more than four months left to serve, he and Nelson came up with an ingenious idea. Whilst nothing in the prison regulations allowed prisoners to write plays, novels or essays, Inmates did have the permission to write letters. Under the previous regime, Wilde had written to solicitors and the Home Office, or in limited quantities, to his friends. But his letters were inspected and the writing materials removed as he finished. It was therefore Nelson's and Wilde's idea that he would never finish this letter of De Profundis, as the regulations did not specify how long a letter should be. And if a letter were not finished, then the prisoner, it was supposed, could be allowed to take it with him when he left the prison. Wilde addresses his letter to Lord Arthur Douglas, and in its first half he recounts his and Bosey's previous relationship and extravagant lifestyle, which eventually led to Wilde's conviction and imprisonment for gross indecency. He indicts both Lord Alfred's vanity and his own weakness in acceding to those wishes. In the second half, Wilde charts his spiritual development in prison and identification with Jesus Christ, whom he characterises as a romantic individualist artist. The letter begins, Dear Bosey, and ends, Your affectionate friend. By the time he wrote De Profundis, Wilde's love for Douglas had turned into a sort of bitterness, and the tone of his long letter manages to capture that bitterness as well as the extraordinary attachment he feels for Douglas. De Profundis, it should be said, is neither fair-minded nor consistent. It is at times bloated in its comparisons and rhetoric. Wilde, for example, compares himself to Christ. But there's also a beautiful, calm eloquence and a sense of urgency of things being said because there might not be the time or opportunity to say them in the future. Wilde's old skill at paradox and phrase-making was not there now merely to amuse his audience or mock his betters, but rather to kill his own pain and grief and attempt to communicate passionately and fiercely with his lover. He wrote not as art now, but as a desperately serious matter. The only beautiful things, as character Vivian told us in The Decay of Lying, which he wrote in 1890, are the things that do not concern us. 
Seven years later, in his cry from the depths, he writes of what mostly deeply concerned him. If there be one single passage that brings tears to the eyes, he says, weep as we weep in prison when the day, no less than the night, is set apart for tears. And then, in what is perhaps the most shocking sentence of the whole letter, he writes, the supreme vice is shallowness. Once upon a time, that would have been for him the supreme virtue. In De Profundis, Wilde accuses Douglas of distracting him from his art, of spending his money, of degrading him ethically, of constant scene-making, of deliberately and then thoughtlessly mistreating him. He goes over Douglas's bad behaviour in matters large and petty, often citing dates, places and details. The tone is fluent and sweeping, full of carefully controlled cadence and measured elegance. But the difference between this tone and Wilde's carefully nurtured flippancy is astonishing. It was like a tenor becoming a baritone, with a new range and depth and a new attention to feeling, but the old skills and tricks with pitch and paradox are still in place, despite his circumstances, or perhaps because of them. The letter cannot be read for its accurate account of their relationship, nor taken at its word. While some of the accusations are true, others are petty and foolish. But that's not the point. De Profundis has neither the informality of a personal letter, nor the distilled sound of a piece of imaginative writing. Its seductive, hurt and passionate tone places it in a category of its own. In all its urgency and ambiguous eloquence, it remains one of the greatest and most complex love letters ever written. It is fascinating to witness a change that comes over while to imaginative procedures as he writes. In the dim light of the prison cell and with the memory of his suffering, fresh, it's as though he seeks a new sort of tension between breathlessness and breath control. He writes long and highly wrought sentences, loving lists of adjectives and clever Latinate diction and elaborate punctuation, to be followed by a pure, plain statement full of the sharp, clipped tone of the Anglo-Saxon. Of course I should have got rid of you, he writes. The reader will want to know why he did not, and part of the power of the text comes from our knowledge that once Wilde was released, despite all his bitter feeling, he and Douglas attempted to live together again and resume their relationship, much to the horror of both Douglas's family and Wilde's wife. Upon his release, Wilde hands the manuscript to Robbie Ross, who had two typed copies made, one of which he sent to Douglas. In 1905, Ross published extracts from the text, and a fuller version in 1908. The complete version, however, was not published until 1949. And it is this one that I read to you now.
to Lord Alfred Douglas, January to March, 1897, H.M. Prison, Reading. Dear Bosey, after long and fruitless waiting, I have determined to write to you myself, as much as for your sake as for mine, as I would not like to think that I had passed through two long years of imprisonment without ever having received a single line from you, or any news or message even, except such as gave me pain. Our ill-fated and most lamentable friendship has ended in ruin and public infamy for me. Yet the memory of our ancient affection is often with me, and the thought that loathing, bitterness and contempt should forever take that place in my heart once held by love is so very sad to me. And you yourself will, I think, feel in your heart that to write to me as I lie in the loneliness of prison life is better than to publish my letters without my permission or to dedicate poems to me unasked. Though the world will know nothing of whatever words of grief or passion, of remorse or indifference you may choose to send as your answer to your appeal. I have no doubt that in this letter in which I have to write of your life and of mine, of the past and of the future, of sweet things changed to bitterness, and of bitter things that may be turned into joy, there will be much that will wound your vanity to the quick. If it proves so, read the letter over and over again till it kills your vanity. If you find in it something of which you feel that you are unjustly accused, remember that one should be thankful that there is any fault of which one can be unjustly accused. If there be in it one single passage that brings tears to your eyes, weep as we weep in prison, where the day no less than the night is set apart for tears. It is the only thing that can save you. If you go complaining to your mother, as you did with reference to the scorn of you, I displayed my letter to Robbie, so that she may flatter and soothe you back to the self-complacency or conceit. You will be completely lost. If you find one false excuse for yourself, you will soon find a hundred. And be just what you were before. Do you still say, as you said to Robbie in your answer, that I attribute unworthy motives to you? Ah, you had no motives in life. You had appetites merely. A motive is an intellectual aim. That you were very young when our friendship began. Your defect was not that you knew so little about life, but that you knew so much. The morning dawn of boyhood in its delicate bloom, its clear, pure light, its joy of innocence and expectations, you had left far behind. With very swift and running feet, you had passed from romance to realism. The gutter and the things that live in it had begun to fascinate you. That was the origin of the trouble in which you sought my aid, and I, so unwisely, according to the wisdom of this world, out of pity and kindness, gave it to you. You must read this letter right through, though each word may become to you as the fire or knife of the surgeon that makes a delicate flesh burn or bleed. Remember that the fool in the eyes of the gods and the fool in the eyes of man are very different. 
One is entirely ignorant of the modes of art and its revolution, or the modes of thought and its progress, of the pomp of the Latin line, or the richer music of the Val Greek, of Tuscan sculpture, or Elizabethan song, may yet be full of the very sweetest wisdom. The real fool, such as the gods mock or mar, is he who does not know it himself. I was such a one too long. You have been such a one too long. Be so no more. Do not be afraid. The supreme vice is shallowness. Everything that is realized is right. Remember also that whatever is misery to you to read is still greater misery to me to set down. To you, the unseen powers have been very good. They have permitted you to see the strange and tragic shapes of life as one sees shadows in a crystal. The head of Medusa that turns living men to stone you have been allowed to look at in a mirror merely. You yourself have walked free among the flowers. From me the beautiful world of colour and motion has been taken away. I will begin by telling you that I blame myself terribly. As I sit here in this dark cell in convict clothes, a disgraced and ruined man, I blame myself. In the perturbed and fitful nights of anguish and the long monotonous days of pain, it is myself I blame. I blame myself for allowing an unintellectual friendship, a friendship whose primary aim was not the creation and contemplation of beautiful things, to entirely dominate my life. From the very first there was too wide a gap between us. You had been idle at your school, worse than idle at your university. You did not realise that an artist, and especially such an artist as I am, one that is to say the quality of whose work depends upon the intensification of personality, requires for the development of his art the companionship of ideas. An intellectual atmosphere, quiet, peace and solitude. You admired my work when it was finished. You enjoyed the brilliant successes of my first nights and the brilliant banquets that followed them. You were proud, and quite naturally so, of being the intimate friend of an artist so distinguished. But you could not understand the conditions requisite for the production of artistic work. I'm not speaking in phrases of rhetorical exaggeration, but in terms of absolute truth to actual fact, when I remind you that during the whole time we were together, I never wrote one single line. Whether at Torquay, Goring, London, Florence or elsewhere, my life, as long as you were by my side, was entirely sterile and uncreative. And with but a few intervals you were, I regret to say, by my side always. I remember, for instance, in September 93, to select merely one instance out of many, taking a set of chambers purely in order to work undisturbed, as I had broken my contract with John Hare, for whom I had promised to write a play, and who was pressing me on the subject. During the first week you kept away, we had, not unnaturally indeed, differed on the question of artistic value of your translation of Salome. So you contented yourself with sending me foolish letters on the subject. In that week I wrote and completed in every detail, as it was ultimately performed, the first act of an ideal husband. The second week you returned and my work practically had to be given up. I arrived at St James's Place every morning at 11.30 
in order to have the opportunity of thinking and writing without the interruptions inseparable from my own household, quiet and peaceful as that household was. But the attempt was vain. At twelve o'clock you drove up and stayed smoking cigarettes and chattering until one thirty, when I had to take you out to luncheon at the Café Royale or the Barclay. Luncheon, with its liqueurs, lasted usually until 3.30. For an hour you retired to White's. At tea time you appeared again and stayed until it was time for, to dress for dinner. You dined with me either at the Savoy or at Tite Street. We did not separate as a rule until after midnight, as supper at Willis's had to wind up the entrancing day. That was my life for those three months, every single day except during the four days when you went abroad. I then, of course, had to go over to Calais to fetch you back. For one of my nature and temperament, it was a position at once grotesque and tragic. You surely must realise that now. You must see now that your incapacity of being alone, your nature so exigent in its persistent claim on the intention and time of others, your lack of any power of sustained intellectual concentration, the unfortunate accident, for I like to think that it was no more, that you had not been able to acquire the Oxford temper in intellectual matters, never, I mean, been one who could pay, play gracefully with ideas, but had arrived at violence of opinion merely, that all these things combined with the fact that your desires and interests were in life, not art, were as destructive to your own progress and culture as they were to my work as an artist. When I compare my friendship with you to my friendship with such still younger men as John Gray and Pierre Louis, I feel ashamed. My real life, my higher life, was with them, and such as they. Of the appalling results of my friendship with you, I don't speak at present. I'm thinking merely of its quality while it lasted. It was intellectually degrading to me. You had the rudiments of an artistic temperament in its germ, but I met you either too late or too soon, I don't know which. When you were away, I was all right. The moment in the early December of the year to which I have been alluding, I had succeeded in inducing your mother to send you out of England. I collected again the torn and raveled web of my imagination, got my life back into my own hands, and not mere, merely finished the three remaining acts of an ideal husband, but conceived and had almost completed two other plays of a completely different type, the Florentine tragedy and La Sainte Courtesane, when suddenly unbidden, unwelcome, and under circumstances fatal to my happiness, you returned. The two works left then imperfect, I was unable to take up again. The mood that created them I could never recover. You, now having yourself published a volume of verse, will be able to recognise the truth of everything I have said here. Whether you can or not, it remains as a hideous truth in the very heart of our friendship. While you were with me, you were an absolute ruin of my art. In allowing you to stand persistently between art and myself, I give to myself shame and blame in the fullest degree. You couldn't know, you couldn't understand, you couldn't appreciate. I had no right to expect it of you at all. Your interests were merely in your meals and moods. Your desires were simply for amusements, for ordinary or less ordinary pleasures. They were what your temperament needed, or thought it needed for the moment.
I should have forbidden you my house and my chambers, except when I specially invited you. I blame myself without reserve for my weakness. It was merely weakness. One half hour with art was almost more to me than a cycle with you. Nothing really at any period of my life was ever of the smallest importance to me compared with art. But in the case of an artist, weakness is nothing less than a crime. When it is a weakness that paralyzes the imagination. I blame myself again for having allowed you to bring me to utter and discreditable financial ruin. I remember one morning, the early of October 92, sitting in the yellowing woods at Bracknell with your mother. At that time I knew very little of your real nature. I had stayed from a Saturday to Monday with you at Oxford. You had stayed with me at Cromer for ten days and played golf. The conversation turned on you and your mother began to speak to me about your character. She told me of your two chief faults. Your vanity and your being, as she termed it, all wrong about money. I have a distinct recollection of how I laughed. I had no idea the first would bring me to prison and the second to bankruptcy. I thought vanity a sort of graceful flower for a young man to wear. As for extravagance, for I thought she meant no more than extravagance, the virtues of prudence and thrift were not in my own nature or my own race. But before our friendship was one month older, I began to see what your mother really meant. Your insistence on a life of reckless profusion your incessant demands for money, your claim that all your pleasure should be paid for by me, whether I was with you or not, brought me, after some time, into serious monetary difficulties. And what made the extravagances to me at any rate so monotonously uninteresting, as your persistent grasp on life grew stronger and stronger, was that money was really spent on little more than the pleasures of eating, drinking and the like. Now then, it is a joy to have one's table red with wine and roses, but you outstripped all the taste and temperaments. You demanded without grace and received without thanks. You grew to think that you had a sort of right to live at my expense and in a profuse luxury to which you had never been accustomed and which for that reason made your appetites all the more keen. And at the end, if you lost money gambling in some Algiers casino, you simply telegraphed next morning to me in London to lodge the amount of your losses to your account at your bank, and gave the matter no further thought of any kind. When I tell you that between the autumn of 1892 and the date of my imprisonment, I spent with you and on you more than £5,000 in actual money, irrespective of the bills I incurred, you'll have some idea of the sort of life in which you insisted. Do you think I exaggerate? My ordinary expenses with you for an ordinary day in London, for luncheon, dinner, supper, amusements, hansoms and the rest of it, ranged from £12 to £20. And the week's expenses were naturally in proportion and ranged from £80 to £130. For our three months at Goring, my expenses, rent of course included, were £1,340. Step by step, with the bankruptcy receiver, I had to go over every item of my life. It was horrible. Plain living and high thinking was, of course, an ideal you could not at that time have appreciated, but such extravagance was a disgrace to both of us. One of the most delightful dinners I remember ever having had is one of Robbie and I together 
at a little Soho cafe which cost about as many shillings as my dinners to you used to cost pounds. Out of my dinner with Robbie came the first and best of all my dialogues. Idea, title, treatment, mode, everything was struck out of the three franc fifty centimes table d'hôte. Out of the reckless dinners with you, nothing remains but the memory that too much was eaten and too much was drunk. And my yielding to your demands was bad for you. You know that now. It made you grasping often, at times not a little unscrupulous, ungracious, always. There was on far too many occasions too little joy or too little privilege in being your host. You forgot, I will not say the formal courtesy of thanks, for formal courtesies will strain a close friendship, but simply the grace of sweet companionship, the charm of pleasant conversation, and all those gentle humanities that make life lovely and are an accompaniment to life as music might be, keeping things in tune and filling with melody the harsh or silent places. And though it may seem strange to you that one in the terrible position in which I am situated should find a difference between one disgrace and another, still I frankly admit that the folly of throwing away all this money on you and letting you squander my fortune to your own heart as well as to mine gives to me, and in my eyes a note of common profligacy, to my bankruptcy that makes me doubly ashamed of it. It was made for other things. But most of all I blame myself for the entire ethical degradation I allowed you to bring on me. The basis of character is willpower, and my willpower became absolutely subject to yours. It sounds a grotesque thing to say, but is nonetheless true. Those incessant scenes that seemed to be almost physically necessary to you, and in which your mind and body grew distorted, and you became a thing as terrible to look at as to listen to. A dreadful mania you inherit from your father. The mania for writing revolting and loathsome letters your entire lack of any control over your emotions as displayed in your long resentful moods of sullen silence, no less than in the sudden fits of the most epileptic rage. All these things in reference to which one of my letters to you left by you lying about at the Savoy or some other hotel and so produced in court by your father's counsel contained an entreaty not devoid of pathos. Had you at the time been able to recognise pathos, either in its elements or in its expression, these, I say, were the origin and causes of my fatal yielding to you and your daily increasing demands. You wore one out. It was a triumph of the smaller of the bigger nature. It was the case of that tyranny of all the weak over the strong, which somewhere in one of my plays I describe as being the only tyranny that lasts. And it was inevitable. In every relation of life with others, one has to find some moyen de vivre. In your case, one had either to give up to you or to give you up. There was no other alternative. Through deep, if misplaced, infection for you, through great pity for your defects of temper and temperament, through my own proverbial good nature and Celtic laziness, through an artistic aversion to coarse scenes and ugly words, through that incapacity to bear resentment of any kind which at that time characterised me, through my dislike of seeing life made bitter and uncomely 
by what to me with my eyes really fixed upon other things seemed to be the more trifles too petty for more than one of a moment's thought or interest. Through these reasons, simple as they may sound, I gave up to you always. As a natural result, your claims, your efforts at domination, your exactations grew more and more unreasonable. Your meanest motive, your lowest appetite, your most common passion became to you laws by which the lives of others were to be to be guided always, and to which, if necessary, they were to be without scruple sacrificed. Knowing that by making a scene you could always have your way, it was but natural that you should proceed, almost unconsciously, I have no doubt, to every excess of vulgar violence. At the end you did not know to what goal you were hurrying, or with what aim in view. Having made your own of my genius, my willpower, my fortune, you required in the blindness of an inexhaustible greed my entire existence. You took it. At the one supremely and tragically critical moment of all my life, just before my lamentable step of beginning of my absurd action, on the one side there was your father attacking me with hideous cards left at my club, on the other side there was you attacking me with no less loathsome letters. The letter I received from you on the morning of the day I let you take me down to the police court to apply for the ridiculous warrant for your father's arrest was one of the worst you ever wrote and for the most shameful reason. Between you both I lost my head. My judgment forsook me. Terror took its place. I saw no possible escape. I may say frankly from either of you. Blindly I staggered as an ox into the shambles. I'd made a gigantic psychological error. I'd always thought that my giving up to you in small things meant nothing that when a great moment arrived I could reassert my willpower in its natural superiority. It was not so. At the great moment my willpower completely failed me. In life there is really no small or great thing. All things are of equal value and of equal size. My habit, due to the indifference chiefly at first, of giving up to you in everything, had become insensibly a real part of my nature. Without my knowing it, it stereotyped my temperament to one permanent and fatal mood. That is why, in the subtle epilogue to our first edition of his essays, Pater says that failure is to form habits. When he said it in the dull Oxford people thought the phrase a mere willful inversion of the somewhat wearisome text of an Aristotelian ethics. But there is a wonderful, a terrible truth hidden in it. I had allowed you to sap my strength of character, and to me the formation of a habit that had proved to be not failure merely, but ruin. Ethically you had been even still more destructive to me than you had been artistically. The warrant once granted, your will of course directed everything. At a time when I should have been in London taking wise counsel and calmly considering the hideous trap in which I had allowed myself to be caught, the booby trap, as your father calls it to the present day, you insisted on my taking you to Monte Carlo, of all revolting places in God's earth, that all day and all night as well you might gamble as long as the casino remained open. As for me, Baccarat having no charms for me, I was left alone outside to myself. 
you refused to discuss even for five minutes the position to which you and your father had brought me. My business was merely to pay your hotel expenses and your losses. The slightest allusion to the ordeal awaiting me was regarded as a bore. A new brand of champagne that was recommended to us had more interest for you. On our return to London, those of my friends who really desired my welfare implored me to retire abroad and not to face an impossible trial. You imputed mean motives to them for giving such advice and cowardice to me for listening to it. You forced me to stay to brazen it out, if possible in the box by absurd and silly perjuries. At the end I was, of course, arrested, and your father became the hero of the hour. More indeed than the hero of the hour merely, your family now ranks, strangely enough, with the immortals. For with that grotesqueness of effective, as it were, a gothic element in history, and makes Cleo the last series of all the muses, your father will always live amongst the kind, pure-minded parents of Sunday school literature. Your place is with the infant Samuel. Your place is with the infant Samuel, in the lowest mire of male bulge I sit between Gilles de Rest and the Marquis de Sade. Of course I should have got rid of you. I should have shaken you out of my life as a man shakes from his raiment a thing that has stung him. In the most wonderful of all his plays, Aeschylus tells us of the great lord who brings up in his house the lion cub and loves it because it becomes bright-eyed to his call and fawns on him for its food. And the thing grows up and shows the nature of its race and destroys the lord in his house and all that he possesses. I feel that I was such a one as he. But my fault was not that I did not part from you, but that I parted from you far too often. As far as I can make out, I ended my friendship with you every three months regularly. At each time that I did so, you managed by means of entreaties, telegrams, letters, and the interposition of your friends, the interposition of time and the like, to induce me to allow you back. When at the end of March 93 you left my house at Torquay, I determined never to speak to you again or allow you under any circumstances to be with me. So revolting had been the scene that you had made me the night before your departure. You wrote and telegraphed from Bristol to beg me to forgive you and meet you. Your tutor, who had stayed behind, told me that he thought at times you were quite irresponsible for what you said and did, and that most, if not all, the men at Maudlin were of the same opinion. I consented to meet you, and of course I forgave you. On the way up to town you begged me to take you to Savoy. That indeed a visit fatal to me. Three months later in June, we are at Goring. Some of your Oxford friends come to stay from a Saturday to Monday. The morning of the day they went away, you made a scene so dreadful, so distressing, that I told you that we must part. I remember quite well as we stood in the level croquet ground with the pretty lawn all around us, pointing out to you that we were spoiling each other's lives, that you were absolutely ruining mine, and that I evidently was not making you really happy and that an irrevocable parting, a complete separation, was the one wise, philosophic thing to do. You went sullenly after luncheon, leaving one of your most offensive letters behind with the butler to be handed to me after your departure. Before three days had elapsed, you were telegraphing from London to beg to be forgiven and allowed to return 
I had taken the place to please you. I had engaged your own servants at your request. I was almost terribly sorry for the hideous temper to which you really were a prey. I was fond of you. So I let you come back and forgave you. Three months later still, in September, new scenes occurred. The occasion of them being by pointing out to the schoolboy faults of your attempted translation of Salome. You must by this time be a fair enough French scholar to know that the translation was unworthy of you, as an ordinary Oxonian, as it was of the work it sought to render. You did not, of course, know it then, and in one of the violent letters you wrote to me on the point, you said you were under no intellectual obligation of any kind to me. I remember when I read that statement. I felt it was one really true thing you had written to me in the whole course of our friendship. I saw that a less cultivated nature would really have suited you much better. I'm not saying this in bitterness at all, but a simple fact of companionship. Ultimately, the bond of all companionship, whether in marriage or in friendship, is conversation. And conversation must have a common basis. And between two people of widely different culture, the only common basis possible is the lowest level. The trivial in thought and action is charming. I had made it the keystone of a very brilliant philosophy expressed in plays and paradoxes. But the froth and folly of our life grew often very wearisome to me. It was only in the mire that we met, and fascinating, terribly fascinating, though the one topic round which your talk invariably centred was, still at the end of it, became quite monotonous to me. I was often bored to death by it, and accepted it as I accepted your passion for going to music halls, or your mania for absurd extravagances in eating and drinking, or any other of your, to me, less attractive characteristics, as a thing, that is to say, that one simply had to put up with, a part of the high price one paid for knowing you, when, after leaving Goring, I went to Dinard for a fortnight, you were extremely angry with me for not taking you with me, and before my departure there, made some very unpleasant scenes on the subject at the Albemarle Hotel, and sent me some equally unpleasant telegrams to a country house I was staying at for a few days. I told you, I remember, that I thought it was your duty to be with your own people for a little, as you had passed the whole season away from them. But in reality, to be perfectly frank with you, I could not under any circumstances have let you be with me. We'd been together for nearly twelve weeks. I required rest and freedom from the terrible strain of your companionship. It was necessary for me to be a little by myself. It was intellectually necessary. And so I confess I saw in your letter from which I have quoted a very good opportunity for ending the fatal friendship that sprung up between us and ending it without bitterness. I had indeed tried to do so on the night at Goring, three months before. It was, however, representative to me, I am bound to say candidly, but one of my own friends, to whom you had gone in your difficulty, that you would be much hurt, perhaps almost humiliated, at having your work sent back to you like a schoolboy's exercise, that I was expecting far too much intellectually from you, and that no matter what you wrote or did, you were absolutely and entirely devoted to me. I did not want to be the first to check or discourage you in your beginnings in literature. 
I knew quite well that no translation, unless done by a poet, could render the colours and cadence of my work in any adequate measure. Devotion seemed to me, seems to me still, a wonderful thing, not to be lightly thrown away. So I took the translation and you back. Exactly three months later, after a series of scenes culminating in one more than usually revolting, when you came one Monday evening to my rooms accompanied by two of your friends, I found myself actually flying abroad next morning to escape from you, giving my family some absurd reason for my sudden departure and leaving a false address with my servant for fear you might follow me by the next train. And I remember that afternoon as I was in the railway carriage whirling up to Paris, thinking what an impossible, terrible, utterly wrong state my life had got into, when I, a man of worldwide reputation, was actually forced to run away from England in order to try and get rid of a friendship that was entirely destructive of everything fine in me, either from the intellectual or ethical point of view. The person from whom I was flying, being no terrible creature, sprung from a sewer or mire into modern life with whom I had entangled my days, but you yourself, a young man of my own social rank and position, who had been at my own college at Oxford and was an incessant guest in my house. The usual telegrams of entreaty and remorse followed. I disregarded them. Finally, you threatened that unless I consented to meet you, you would under no circumstances consent to proceed to Egypt. I had myself, with your knowledge and concurrence, begged your mother to send you to Egypt, away from England, as you were wrecking your life in London. I knew that if you did not go, it would be a terrible disappointment to her. And for her sake, I did agree to meet you. And under the influence of great emotion, which even you cannot have forgotten, I forgave the past. Though I said nothing at all about the future. On my return to London the next day, I remember sitting in my room and sadly, seriously, trying to make up my mind whether or not you really were what you seemed to be. So full of terrible defects, so utterly ruinous both to yourself and to others, so fatal a one to even know or to be with. For a whole week I thought about it, and wondered if, after all, I was not unjust and mistaken in my estimate of you. At the end of the week a letter from your mother is handed in. It expressed to the full every feeling I myself had had about you. In it she spoke about your blind, exaggerated vanity, which made you despise your home and treat your elder brother as a Philistine, of your temper which made her afraid to speak to you about your life, the life she felt she knew you were leading, about your conduct and money matters, so distressing to her in more ways than one, of the degeneration and change that had taken place in you. She saw, of course, that heredity had burdened you with a terrible legacy, and frankly admitted it, admitted it with terror. He is the one of my children who has inherited the fatal Douglas temperament, she wrote of you. At the end, she stated that she felt bound to declare that your friendship with me, in her opinion, had so intensified your vanity that it had become the source of all your faults and earnestly begged me not to meet you abroad. I wrote to her at once in reply and told her that I had agreed entirely with every word she had said. I added much more. I went as far as I could possibly go. 
I told her that the origin of our friendship was you in your undergraduate days at Oxford coming to beg me to help you in the very serious trouble of a very particular character. I told her that your life had been continuously in the same manner troubled. The reason of your going to Belgium you had placed to the fault of your companion in that journey, and your mother had reproached me with having introduced you to him. I replaced the fault on the right shoulders, on yours. I assured her at the end I had not the smallest intention of meeting you abroad, and begged her to try to keep you there, either as an honorary attaché, if that were possible, or to learn modern languages, if it were not, or for any reason she chose, at least during two or three years, and for your sake as well as for mine. In the meantime, you are writing to me by every post from Egypt. I took not the smallest notice of any of your communications. I read them and tore them up. I had quite settled to have no more to do with you. My mind was made up, and I gladly devoted myself to the art whose progress I had allowed you to interrupt. At the end of three months, your mother, with that unfortunate weakness of will that characterises her, and that in tragedy of my life, has been an element no less fatal than your father's violence, actually writes to me herself. I have no doubt, of course, at your instigation, tells me you're extremely anxious to hear from me. And in order that I should have no excuse for not communicating with you, sends me your address in Athens, which, of course, I knew perfectly well. I confess I was absolutely standard to her letter. I could not understand how, after what she had written to me in December, and what I, in answer, had written to her, she could in any way try to repair or to renew my unfortunate friendship with you. I acknowledged her letter, of course, and again urged her to try and get you connected with some embassy abroad, so as to prevent you from returning to England. But I did not write to you, or take any more notice of your telegrams than I did before your mother had written to me. Finally, you actually telegraphed to my wife, begging her to use her influence with me to get me to write to you. Our friendship had always been a source of distress to her, not merely because she knew she never liked you personally, but because she saw how your continual companionship altered me, and not for the better. Still, just as she had always been most gracious and hospitable to you, so she could not bear the idea of my being in any way unkind, for so it seemed to her, to any of my friends. She thought, knew indeed, that it was a thing alien to my character, at her request, I did communicate with you. I remember the wording of my telegram quite well. I said at the time healed every wound, but that for many months to come, I would neither write to you nor see you. You started without delay for Paris, sending me passionate telegrams on the road to beg me to see you once at any rate. I declined. You arrived in Paris late on a Saturday night, and found a brief letter from me waiting for you at your hotel, stating I would not see you. The next morning I received in Tite Street a telegram of some ten or eleven pages in length from you. You stated in it that no matter what you had done to me, you could not believe that I would absolutely decline to see you. You reminded me that for the sake of seeing me, even for one hour you had travelled six days and nights across Europe without stopping once on the way. You made what I must admit was a most pathetic appeal, and ended with what you seemed to me a threat of suicide, and one not thinly veiled, 
You had yourself often told me how many of your race there had been who'd stained their hands in their own blood. Your uncle certainly, your grandfather possibly, many others in mad, bad line from which you come. Pity my old affection for you, regard for your mother to whom your death under such dreadful circumstances would have been, a blow to almost too great for her to bear. The horror of the idea that so young a life and one amidst all its ugly faults still had promise of beauty in it should come to such a revolting end, mere humanity itself. All these, if excuses be necessary, must serve as my excuse for consenting to accord you one last interview. When I arrived in Paris, your tears breaking out again and again all through the evening and falling over your cheeks like rain as we sat at dinner first at Voisin's, at supper at Palliard's, and afterwards the unfeigned joy you evinced at seeing me, holding my hand whenever you could, as though you were a gentle and penitent child. Your contrition, so simple and sincere, at the moment made me consent to renew our friendship. Two days after we had returned to London, your father saw you having luncheon with me at the Café Royale, joined my table, drank of my wine, and that afternoon, through a letter addressed to you, began his first attack on me. It may be strange, but I had once again, I will not say the chance, but the duty of separating from you forced on me. I need hardly remind you that I referred to your conduct to me at Brighton from October 10th to October 13th, 1894. Three years ago is a long time for you to go back. But we who live in prison and whose lives there is no event but sorrow have to measure time by throbs of pain and the record of bitter moments. We have nothing else to think of. Suffering, curious as it may sound to you, is the means by which we exist, because it is the only means by which we become conscious of existing. And the remembrance of suffering in the past is necessary to us as the warrant, the evidence, of our continued identity. Between myself and the memory of joy lies a gulf no less deep than that between myself and joy in its actuality. Had our life together been as the world fancied it to be, one simply of pleasure, profligacy and laughter, I would not be able to recall a single passage in it. It is because it was full of moments and days, tragic, bitter, sinister in their warnings, dull or dreadful in their monotonous scenes and unseemly violences, that I can see or hear each separate incident in its detail, can indeed see or hear little else. So much in this place do men live by pain that my friendship with you, in the way through which I am forced to remember it, appears to me always as a prelude consonant with those varying modes of anguish which each day I have to realise, nay more, to necessitate them even, as though my life, whatever it seemed to myself and to others, had all the while been a real symphony of sorrow, passing through its rhythmically linked movements to its certain resolution, with that inevitable that an art characterised the treatment of every great theme. I spoke of your conduct to me on three successive days, three years ago, did I not? I was trying to finish my last play at Worthing by myself. The two visits you had paid to me had ended. You suddenly appeared a third time, bringing with you a companion whom you actually proposed should stay in my house. I, you must now admit quite properly, absolutely declined. I entertained you, of course. I had no option in the matter. 
but elsewhere, not in my house. The next day, a Monday, your companion returned to the duties of his profession, and you stayed with me. Bored with Worthing, and still more, I have no doubt, with my fruitless efforts to concentrate my attention on my play, the only thing that really interested me at the moment, you insist on being taken to the Grand Hotel at Brighton. The night we arrive, you fall ill with that dreadful low fever that is foolishly called influenza. Your second, if not third, attack. I need not remind you I waited on you and tended you, not merely with every luxury of fruit, flowers, presents, books and the like that money can procure, but with that affection, tenderness and love, whatever you may think is not to be procured for money. Except for an hour's walk in the morning and an hour's drive in the afternoon, I never left the hotel. I got special grapes from London for you, as you did not care for those the hotel supplied. I invented things to please you, remained either with you or in the room next to yours, sat with you every evening to quiet or amuse you. After four or five days you recover, and I take lodgings in order to try and finish my play. You, of course, accompany me. The morning after the day on which we were installed, I feel extremely ill. You have to go to London on business, but promise to return that afternoon. In London you meet a friend, and do not come back to Brighton until late the next day, by which time I am in a terrible fever, and the doctor finds I have caught the influenza from you. Nothing could have been more uncomfortable for anyone ill than lodgings turn out to be. My sitting room is on the first floor, my bedroom on the third. There's no manservant to wait on one. Not even anyone to send out on a messenger to get what the doctor orders. But you are there. I feel no alarm. The next two days you leave me entirely alone, without care, without attendance, without anything. It was not a question of grapes, flowers and charming gifts. It was a question of mere necessities. I could not even get the milk the doctor had ordered for me. Lemonade was pronounced an impossibility and when I begged you to procure me a book at the booksellers, or if they had not got whatever I had fixed on, to choose something else. You never even take the trouble to go there. And when I was left all day without anything to read in consequence, you calmly tell me that you brought me the book, and that they had promised to send it down, a statement which I found by chance afterwards to be entirely untrue from beginning to end. All the while you're, of course, living at my expense, driving about, dining at the Grand Hotel, and indeed only appearing in my room for money. On the Saturday night you have left me completely unattended and alone since the morning. I ask you to come back after dinner and sit with me for a little. With irritable voice and ungracious manner you promise to do so. I wait until eleven o'clock and you never appear. I then left a note for you in your room, just reminding you of the promise you had made me, and how you had kept it. At three in the morning, unable to sleep and tortured with thirst, I made my way in the dark and cold down to the sitting room in the hopes of finding some water there. I found you. You fell on me with every hideous word an intemperate mood and undisciplined and untutored nature could suggest. By the terrible alchemy of egotism, you converted your remorse into rage. You accused me of selfishness in expecting you to be with me when I was ill, of standing between you and your amusements, of trying to deprive you out of your pleasures. You told me, and I know it was quite true, that you'd come back at midnight simply in order to change your dress clothes, 
and go out again to where you hoped new pleasures were waiting for you. But that by leaving you for a letter in which I reminded you you'd neglected me the whole day and the whole evening, I had really robbed you of your desire for more enjoyment and diminished your actual capacity for fresh delights. I went back upstairs in disgust and remained sleepless until dawn. Not till long after dawn I was able to get anything to quench my thirst of the fever that was on me. At eleven o'clock you come into my room. In the previous scene I could not help observing that by my letter I had had at any rate checked you in a night of more than usual excess. In the morning you were quite yourself. I waited naturally to hear what excuses you had to make and in what way you were going to ask for the forgiveness you knew in your heart was invariable waiting for you. No matter what you did, your absolute trust that I would always forgive you in being the thing that you, you and I always really liked the best. Perhaps the best thing in you to like. So far from doing that, you began to repeat the same scene with renewed emphasis and more violent assertion. I told you at length to leave the room. You pretended to do so, but when I lifted up my head from the pillow in which I had buried it, you were still there, and with brutality of laughter and hysteria of rage, you moved suddenly towards me. A sense of horror came over me, for what exact reason I could not make out, but I got out of my bed at once and barefooted, and just as I was, made my way down to the two flights of stairs to the sitting room, which I did not leave till the owner of the lodging for whom I had rung had assured me you had left my bedroom and promised to remain within call in case of necessity. After an interval of an hour, during which time the doctor had come and found me, of course, in a state of absolute nervous prostration, as well as in a worse condition of fever than I had been at the outset, you returned silently for money, took what you could find on the dressing table and mantelpiece and left the house with your luggage. May I really tell you what I thought of you during these two wretched lonely days of illness that followed? Is it necessary for me to state that I saw clearly that it would be a dishonour to myself to continue even acquaintance with such a one as you had showed yourself to be? That I recognised that the ultimate moment had come, and recognised it as being really a, of great relief, and that I knew for the future my art and life would be freer and better and more beautiful in every possible way. Ill as I was, I felt at peace. The fact that the separation was irrevocable gave me peace. By Tuesday the fever had left me, and for the first time I dined downstairs. Wednesday was my birthday. Amongst the telegrams and communications on my table was a letter in your handwriting. I opened it with a sense of sadness over me. I knew that the time had gone when a pretty phrase and expression of affection a word of sorrow would make me take you back. But I was entirely deceived. I had underrated you. The letter you sent to me on my birthday was an elaborate repetition of the two scenes set cunningly and carefully down in black and white. You mocked me with common jests. Your one satisfaction in the whole affair was you said that you'd retired to the Grand Hotel and entered your luncheon to my account before you left for town. You congratulated me on my prudence in leaving my sick bed on my sudden flight downstairs. It was an ugly moment for you, you said. Uglier than you imagined. Ah, 
I felt it but too well. What it had really meant I did not know. Whether you had with you the pistol that you had bought to try and frighten your father, and that thinking it to be unloaded you'd once fired it off in a public restaurant in my company, whether your hand was moving towards a common dinner knife that by chance was lying on the table between us, whether forgetting in your rage your low stature and inferior strength you had thought of some specially personal insult or attack even as I lay ill there, I could not tell. I do not know to the present moment. All I know is that a feeling of utter horror had come over me, and that I had felt that unless I left the room at once and got away, you would have done, or tried to do, something that would have been, even to you, a source of long, lifelong shame. Only once before in my life had I experienced such a feeling of horror at any human being. It was when I was in my library at Tite Street, waving his small hands in the air in epileptic fury, your father, with his bully or his friend between us, had stood uttering every foul word his foul mind could think of and screaming the loathsome threats he afterwards with such cunning carried out. In the latter case, he, of course, was the one who had to leave the room first. I drove him out. In your case, I went. It was not the first time I had been obliged to save you from yourself. You concluded your letter by saying, When you are not on your pedestal, you are not interesting. The next time you are ill, I shall go away at once. Ah, what coarseness of fibre does that reveal? What an entire lack of imagination. How callous, how common had the temperament by that time become. When you are not alone on your pedestal, you are not interesting. The next time you are ill, I will go away at once. How often have those words come back to me in the wretched solitary cell of the various prisons I have been sent to? I have said them to myself over and over again, and seen in them, I hope unjustly, some of the secret of your strange silence. For you to write thus to me, when the very illness and fever from which I was suffering I had caught from tending you, was of course revolting as coarseness and crudity. But for any human being in the whole world to write thus to another would be a sin for which there is no pardon, whether any sin for which there is none. I confess that when I had finished your letter I felt almost polluted, as if by associating with one of such a nature I had soiled and shamed my life irretrievably. I had, it is true, done so, but I was not to learn how fully till just six months later on in life. I settled with myself to go back to London on the Friday and see Sir George Lewis personally and request him to write to your father to state that I determined never under any circumstances to allow you to enter my house, to sit at my board, to talk to me, walk with me, or anywhere and at any time to be my companion at all. This done, I would have written to you just to inform you of the course of action I had adopted, the reasons you would inevitably have realised for yourself. I had arranged everything on Thursday night, when, on Friday morning, as I was sitting at breakfast before starting, I happened to open the newspaper and saw in it a telegram stating that your elder brother, the real head of the family, the heir to the title, the pillar of the house, had been found dead in a ditch with a gun lying discharged beside him. The horror of the circumstances of the tragedy now known to have been an accident, but then stained with a darker suggestion, the pathos of the sudden death of one so loved by all who knew him, and almost on the eve, as it were, of his marriage, my idea of what your own sorrow would or should be, 
my consciousness of the misery awaiting your mother and the loss of the one to whom she had clung for comfort and joy in life, and who, as she told me once herself, had from the very day of his birth never caused her to shed a single tear. My consciousness of your own isolation, both your brothers being sent out of Europe, and you, consequently, the only one to whom your mother and sister could look, not merely for companionship in their sorrow, but also for those dreary responsibilities of dreadful detail that death always brings with it. The mere sense of lacrimae rerum, of the tears of which the world is made, of the sadness of all human beings, out of the confluence of these thoughts and emotions crowding into my brain came infinite pity for you and your family. My own griefs and bitterness against you I forgot. What you had been to me in my sickness I could not be to you in your bereavement. I telegraphed at once to you my deepest sympathy, and in the letter that followed I invited you to come to my house as soon as you were able. I felt that to abandon you at that particular moment and formally through a solicitor would have been too terrible for you. On your return to town, from the actual sense of tragedy to which you had been summoned, you came at once to me, very sweetly and very simply, in your suit of woe, and with your dim eyes and tears. You sought consolation and help, as a child might seek it. I opened to you my house, my home, my heart. I made your sorrow mine also, that you might have help in bearing it. Never, even by one word, did I allude to your conduct towards me the revolting scenes and the revolting letter. Your grief, which was real, seemed to me to bring you nearer to me than you had ever been. The flowers you took from me to put in your brother's grave were to be a symbol not merely of the beauty of his life, but of the beauty that in all lives lies dormant and may be brought to light. The gods are strange. It is not of our vices only they make instruments to scourge us. They bring us to ruin through what is in, uh, what in us is good, gentle, humane, and loving. But for my pity and affection for you and yours, I would not now be weeping in this terrible place. Of course I discern in all our relations not destiny merely, but doom. Doom that walks swiftly, because she goes to the shedding of blood. Through your father you come of a race, marriage with whom is horrible, friendship fatal, and that lays violent hands either on its own life or on the lives of others. In every little circumstance in which the ways of our lives meet, in every point of great or seemingly trivial import in which you came to me for pleasure or for help, in the small chances, the slight accidents that look in their relation to life to be no more than dust that dances in a beam, or the leaf that flutters from a tree, ruin followed, like the echo of a bitter cry, or the shadow that hunts with the beast of a prey. Our friendship really begins with your begging me in a most pathetic and charming letter to assist you in a position appalling to anyone, doubly so to a young man at Oxford. I do so, and ultimately through your using my name as your friendship with George Lewis, I begin to lose his esteem and friendship, a friendship of 15 years standing. When I was deprived of his advice and help, and regard I was deprived of the one of the greatest safeguard of my life. You sent me a very nice poem 
of the undergraduate school of verse for my approval. I reply by a letter of fantastic literary conceits. I compare you to Hylas or Hyacinth, Yonquil or Narcissus, or someone the great god of poetry favoured and honoured with his love. The letter is like a passage from one of Shakespeare's sonnets, transposed to a minor key. It can be only understood by those who have read the Symposium of Plato, or caught the spirit of a certain grave mood made beautiful for us in Greek marbles. It was, let me say frankly, the sort of letter I would in a happy, if willful moment, have written to any graceful young man of either university who had sent me a poem of his own making. Certainly he would have sufficient wit or culture to interpret rightly its fantastic phrases. Look at the history of that letter. It passes from you into the hands of a loathsome companion, from him to a gang of blackmailers. Copies of it are sent about London to my friends and to the manager of the theatre where my work has been performed. Every construction but the right one is put on it. Society is thrilled with the absurd rumours that I have had to pay a huge sum of money for having written an infamous letter to you. This forms the basis of your father's worst attack. I produce the original letter myself in court to show what it really is. It is denounced by your father's counsel as a revolting and insidious attempt to corrupt innocence. Ultimately, it forms part of a criminal charge. The Crown takes it up. The judge sums up on it with little learning and much morality. I go to prison for it at last. That is the result of writing you a charming letter. Whilst I'm staying with you at Salisbury, you are terribly alarmed at threatening communication from a foreign companion of yours. You beg me to see the writer and help you. I do so. The result is ruin to me. I am forced to take everything you have done on my shoulders and answer for it. When, having failed to take your degree, you have to go down from Oxford, you telegraph to me in London to beg me to come to you. I do so at once. You ask me to take you to Goring, as you did not like under the circumstances to go home. At Goring you see a house that charms you. I take it for you. The result from every point of view is ruin to me. One day you come to me and ask me, as a personal favour to you, to write something for an Oxford undergraduate magazine, about to be started by some friend of yours whom I had never heard of in all my life, and knew nothing at all about. To please you, what I did not what did I not do to always please you? I send him a page of paradoxes, destined originally for the Saturday Review. A few months later I find myself standing in the dock of the Old Bailey on account of the character of the magazine. It forms part of the crown charge against me. I am called upon to defend your friend's prose and your own verse. The former I cannot palliate. The latter I, loyal to the bitter extreme, to your youthful literature, as to your youthful life, do strongly defend, and will not hear of your being a writer of indecencies. But I go to prison all the same for your friend's undergraduate magazine and the love that dares not tell its name. At Christmas I give you a very pretty present as you described in your letter of thanks, on which I knew you had set your heart, worth some forty or fifty pounds at most. When the crash of my life comes, I am ruined. The bailiff who seizes my library has it sold to do so, to pay for the very pretty present. It was for that execution that was put into my house. 
at the ultimate and terrible moment when I am taunted and spurred on by your taunts to take an action against your father and have him arrested, the last straw to which I clutch in my wretched efforts to escape is a terrible expense. I tell the solicitor in your presence that I have no funds, that I cannot possibly afford the appalling costs, that I have no money at my disposal. What I said was, as you know, perfectly true. On that fatal Friday, instead of being in Humphrey's office, weakly consenting to my own ruin, I would have been happy and free in France, away from you and your father, unconscious of his loathsome card and indifferent to your letters, if I had been able to leave the Avondale Hotel. But the hotel people absurdly refused to allow me to go. You had been staying with me for ten days, and indeed you had ultimately, to my great, and you will admit rightful indignation, brought a companion of yours to stay with me also. My bill for the ten days was nearly £140. The proprietor said he could not allow my luggage to be removed from the hotel until I paid the account in full. That is what kept me in London. Had it not been for the hotel bill, I would have gone to Paris on Thursday morning. When I told the solicitor I had no money to face the gigantic expense, you interposed at once. You said that your own family would only be too delighted to pay all the necessary costs that your father had been incubus to them all, and that they'd often discussed the possibility of getting him put into a lunatic asylum so as to keep him out of the way, that he was a daily source of annoyance and distress to your mother and to everyone else that if I would only come forward to have him shut up, I would be regarded by the family as their champion and their benefactor, and that your mother's rich relations themselves would look on it as a real delight to be allowed to pay all the costs and expenses that might be incurred in any such effort. The solicitor closed at once, and I was hurried to the police court. I had no excuse left for not going. I was forced into it. Of course, your family don't pay the costs, and when I am made bankrupt, it is by your father, and for the costs, the meagre balance of them, some £700. At the present moment, my wife estranged from me over the important question of whether I should have three or three pounds and ten shillings a week to live on, is preparing a divorce suit, for which, of course, entirely new evidence and entirely new trial, to be followed perhaps more serious proceedings, will be necessary. I naturally know nothing of the details. I merely know the name of the witness on whose evidence my wife's solicitors rely. It is your own Oxford servant, whom at your special request I took into my service for our summer at Goring. But indeed, I need not, need not go on further with more instances of the strange doom you seem to have brought on me in all things big or little. It makes me feel sometimes as if you yourself had merely been a puppet worked by some secret and unseen hand to bring terrible events to terrible issue. But puppets themselves have passions. This, they will bring a new plot into what they are presenting and twist the ordered issue of vicissitude to suit some whim or appetite of their own. To be entirely free, at the same time entirely dominated by law, is the eternal paradox of human life that we realise at every moment and this, I often think, is the only explanation possible of your nature, if indeed for the profound and terrible mysteries of a human soul there is any explanation at all, except one that makes the mystery more marvellous still. Of course you had your illusions. Lived in them, indeed, and through their shifting mists and coloured veils, so all things changed. You thought, I remember quite well, 
that devoting yourself to me to the entire exclusion of your family and your family life was a proof of your wonderful appreciation of me and of your great affection. No doubt to you it seems so. But recollect that with me was a luxury, high living, unlimited pleasure, money without stint. Your family life bored you. The cold, cheap wine of Salisbury, to use a phrase of your own making, was distasteful to you. On my side, and along with my intellectual attractions, were the flesh pots of Egypt. When you could not find me to be with, the companions whom you chose as substitutes were not flattering. You thought again that in sending a lawyer's letter to your father to say, rather that in sever your eternal friendship with me, you would give up the allowance of £250 a year, which I believe deductions for your Oxford debts he was then making you. You were realising the very chivalry of friendship, touching the noblest note of self-denial. But your surrender of your little allowance did not mean that you were ready to give up even one of your more superfluous luxuries or most unnecessary extravagances. On the contrary, your appetite for luxurious living was never so keen. My expenses for eight days in Paris for myself, you and your Italian servant, were nearly £150. Pilliard alone absorbing £85. At the rate at which you wished to live, your entire income for a whole year, if you had taken your meals alone and especially economical in your selection of the cheaper form of pleasures, would hardly have lasted you three weeks. The fact in what was merely a pretense of bravado you had surrendered your allowance with such as it was, gave you at last a plausible reason for your claim to live at my expense, or what you thought a plausible reason, and on many occasions you seriously availed yourself of it, and gave the very fullest expression to it, and continued drain, principally of course on me, but also to a certain extent I know on your mother, was never so distressing because in my case at any rate, never so completely unaccompanied by the smallest word of thanks or sense of limit. You thought that again, in attacking your own father with dreadful letters, abusive telegrams and insulting postcards, you were really fighting your mother's battles, coming forward as a champion and avenging the no doubt terrible wrongs and suffering of her married life. It was quite an illusion on your part one of your worst indeed. The way for you to have avenged your mother's wrongs on your father, if you considered it part of a son's duty to do so, was by being a better son to your mother than you had been, by not making her afraid to speak to you on serious things, by not signing bills the payment of which devolved on her, by being gentler to her, not bringing sorrow into her days. Your brother Francis made great amends to her for what she had suffered by his sweetness and goodness to her through the brief years of his flower-like life. You should have taken him as your model. You were wrong even in fancying that it would have been an absolute delight and joy to your mother if you had managed through me to get your father put into prison. I feel sure you were wrong. And if you want to know what a woman really feels when her husband and the father of her children is in prison dress in a prison cell, write to my wife and ask her. She will tell you. End of part one. I hope you enjoyed it. Part two next week.